Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your regular venture each time around into a case or cases of true crime that you may not know, you may even less believe, from the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you said tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I've tried shutting him downstairs, but he keeps clawing to come back in, so the world's tiniest cow, Peeksy, is here as ever. Well, it's where he belongs, really. And completing us is, look in the mirror, it's you all, the cherished enthusiasts that make the show come to life. It's amazing as it always is to have you join us here today, which means the world as it ever does. And I do hope that as you have, the episode finds you and all dear to you, all good, all safe and all well. First off then, thank you all for the feedback received concerning the previous episode, a return to a listener-penned episode in which Karen McLeod brought us the perplexing tale of the missing Stephen Clark. I know that unresolved tales are not the most popular amongst listeners, because like everything boxed off and squared away, but Karen's work was fabulous on this tale. Plus, you have the benefit here of someone who lives near and so knows the area concerned when writing up the case, which always brings it that much more colour that comes from describing somewhere that you know, and it's something that I'll always champion that is. I do invite all to hear their theories about the case in the episode thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, because collective sharing of stuff, of theories and ideas, is sometimes how things like Stephen's disappearance are solved. Now, because it's getting proper close as the episode drops, it's almost CrimeCon 2022 time, a weekend of all sorts from the world of true crime. Experts galore, demonstrations, author signings, there's an absolute ruck to do there. And what's the undoubted highlight of the whole weekend? It's Podcast Row, of course, isn't it? Where you can catch so many of your favourite shows in attendance over the event. I'm talking the likes of Twisted Britain, UK True Crime, They Walk Among Us, Seeing Red, Lady Justice, Men's Rear, Morbidology, and that's just to name a few of them. Now, I know that's already a list of legends, isn't it? But it's got to come down a peg or two, because I shall be amongst this band of miscreants for the weekend as well. I might even this year be in part hosting the true crime quiz that takes place there. Just watch this space. Well, actually, no, there's no watching. I shall be alongside some of the other hosts, which I can't wait to do. It's going to be ace. It was a blast last year, the whole weekend was, and I look forward to seeing so many more of you this year to say hi to, to shoot the breeze with, put the world to rights. We can talk about Rebecca and Colleen. We can talk about Johnny and Amber. Whatever you want, it'll be a right weekend. There are only a few tickets left for the event, and I'd hate to miss anyone there. So if you fancy a top weekend down the smoke, if you come to book your tickets using the link that's in the episode show notes, then at checkout, why not use the unique code ENTHUSIAST and get yourself a decent 10% discount off the price whilst you're at it. I can't wait to see some of you folks there. It'd be great to say hi to you, it really will. Patreon episode 52 is also coming for supporters soon. I've selected an interesting topic for this time around indeed, and on the subject of Patreon, the episode that airs on the regular show today, the one that you're listening to, is this time around a reworking of a previous Patreon episode. Now I know I do share these from time to time, of course I do on the show's birthday in September, there's always a voted one for there, but whilst bonus episodes are that for a reason, 
Sometimes these tales burn such a hole in my ass. I think I've got to bring this to the regular show. And so what I do here is try my best to make it sound like a fresh episode for all. I'll always leave it for ages. And they're always fully re-recorded and edited. And who knows, I may even chuck a top shagger in here and there if I can, or shamble a bollocks or something like that. You know me by now. There is always a sizable back catalogue of episodes of some extra enthusiast available though. From tales such as the randomness of the Bravo 2 heroes, to the tragedy and horror of an offering to the angels. And if you fancy a full series worth of unheard tales, and the episode dropping here may just whet your appetite a little bit, while still leaving plenty, then like the returning and new supporters, Tom, Jamie Berg, Stephen Allen, Erin M. Baker, Rachel Brook, Victoria Redman and Cameron Woodhead, plus Claire Hayden-Jones, Claire Sweaton-Miller, Joe N., and Marianne Elizabeth Johnson who've opted to annually support the show and who all get my utmost thanks and appreciation it means the world to me you each ace every single one of you then you folks can be doing the same as these also for the best part of bugger all each month and quicker than coming to the conclusion that ITV show Romeo and Duet is absolute dog shit it's replaced bridge lies, it honestly has. Try it if you can for a few minutes if you get a chance to. Personally, I'd rather watch the GC going thong shopping. Then you can get your extra enthusiast by simply heading over to Patreon and seeking out the show on there. It's got the same show logo and name and all of that. Or by simply heading into the episode show notes and using the link that will take you right to it and going from there. It's so simple, it's already won the next series of Love Island. Oh yes, those bellends are back, and they won't escape unscathed over the next few episodes, I can promise you that. So the tale that I bring this time around, as I said earlier on, it was a tale I brought to Patreon several months ago, so at the start of last year, and it was an unfamiliar one for me, but one that really is a case that I think should be more familiar than it is, and it's one that will undoubtedly anger some, and will horrify others, and which we shall get to following a short word from the episode's sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. All relationships take work, and none more so than the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. So ask yourself, is this something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or wants, or is stopping you from being who you want to be, and you feel like you need some help with it? Help is something we all need at some point in our lives, so if I've struck a chord here, then perhaps BetterHelp can be that solution for you. BetterHelp offers you online therapy in the form of video, phone or live chat sessions with a licensed professional therapist, is a service much more affordable than any in-person therapy and is available worldwide, and in under 48 hours of reaching out, you can be matched with a therapist that's best suited to help you with your needs. I found personally that talking to a professional has helped me in my own times of need before, so if you feel that you need to, perhaps give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash tce 
So, for our tale this time around then, one which spans almost 15 years in total, I begin with a question that has caused countless debates. Should a convicted killer ever be released? Many would say outright no, it should be a life for a life, even if that's a life served behind bars. But in many cases, the law says that when they're deemed to have served their sentence, or their decided minimum tariff, upon them satisfying certain conditions, they should be released for a second chance to become a productive citizen. But for a few of these who are released in such a way, that release brings with it a second chance to kill. We've heard the cases of Glyn Dix and then Peter Bryant several series ago, two examples of such people, but there are several other notable examples of these, one of which I'm bringing to you here this time. The episode contains graphic details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children, involving injury detail and with descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for an episode that I've entitled To Kill and Kill Again. We're off back 50 years to 1962 to begin and to the town of Shipley near Bradford in West Yorkshire. Now I did look for some decent stats about Shipley and apologies if you're listening in from there but nothing really earth shattering jumped out at me about there really apart from that the Yorkshire Ripper was from very close to there in Bingley and notable people to hail from Shipley include actor Brian Mosley who's best known as Mayor Alf Roberts in Corrie but more interestingly, I thought, is the fellow who Michael Caine throws off the top of the multi-storey car park in Get Carter. The one who he says, you're a big man, but you're in bad shape. For me, it's a full-time job. Now behave yourself. But in the Michael Caine London accent, I can't do it. It's a fab movie, that is. Anyway, it's one of my faves. And Harry Corbett, the creator and for many years the puppeteer of children's television puppet Sooty. I wonder how many people are listening and now waggling their hand in front of their face and thinking, look, sooty in the nude. Or perhaps that's just the child in me. The name Shipley stems from the old English words skip and lee, meaning sheep and a forest, a wood, glade or clearing respectively. So it's been variously defined as a forest clearing used for sheep due to its proximity to the river Eyre and its history as a sheep grazing area. Shipley was once a thriving place and was shaped largely by the onset of the textile industry due to the Industrial Revolution. But when this industry went into decline, so too did Shipley, until it enjoyed some resurgence post-World War II, with many of its existing historical buildings being removed completely as part of expansion and redevelopment, or either converted for other uses, and what was then classed as slum housing replaced with more modern builds and low-rise modern retail outlets. For many years post-World War II, this expansion and redevelopment continued, until by the summer of 1962, the expansion had reached the Dockfield Trading Estate on Shipley's Dockfield Road, where an extension to this was underway. Now, places such as a large area of open land on the outskirts of a town complete with a riverbank and trees, that's also near to a vast construction site, is like a dream playground for kids to play in. 
And back then, at the start of the school summer holidays, just after 5pm on the afternoon of Monday, July the 23rd of that year, 10-year-old Layman's Burzins and his friend, 9-year-old Clive Jones, were out doing just that, playing on the riverbank some two miles away from their home in Kingsway, in the Bradford village of Rose. As the boys were fishing for tiddlers with a jam jar in the shallow part of the river, happy enough but not having much luck at all, they were approached by a man who had seemingly appeared out of nowhere and who sat and chatted with the boys for some time. After asking them what they'd caught, he told them that he'd just seen and startled some rabbits, which he'd watched run from the riverbank and head into a wood about a quarter of a mile away from there. Would the boys like him to show them where they'd gone and perhaps to catch one, the man had asked, offering to show the boys how to make a snare to do so claiming he knew how best to do this because he'd done so several times on the farm that he worked on. Now both boys being keen wolf cubs and intrigued by this, always eager to learn new skills, did accompany this man across to the wood which adjoined the end part of Dockfield Road, but once they'd arrived there, it was only Clive that was willing to enter the wood with the man, layman's opting to stay behind with somewhat nervous apprehension because something told him that there was something sinister and not quite right about this. Only a short time later, as he nervously waited for his friend, Layman's anxiety was realised when he heard his friend's piercing scream coming from inside the wood. Moments later, the man exited the wood from the way both he and Clive had entered it, only now he was alone and then he turned to look at Layman's. Now Layman's was off like greased weasel shit, as you can imagine, and he didn't stop running, terrified out of his mind, until he reached Clive's house in Rose Road, some two miles away. As he breathlessly blurted out his story, Clive's concerned parents, George and Joan Jones, went immediately around to the home of their next-door neighbour, John Armstrong, who had a car and whom they asked to take them and Layman's back to where he'd described, which Mr Armstrong agreed to immediately. You don't hesitate to assist with something as serious as a missing child, do you? Only a few minutes later then, the car pulled up where Layman's had directed them to, and unsure of what may be found inside, and with the well-being of his friends and neighbours firmly in mind, John advised George and Joan to wait in the car with Layman's, whilst he ventured inside the wood to have a look around. Almost immediately, slumped against a tree and partly concealed with uprooted undergrowth, John Armstrong discovered the body of his nine-year-old neighbour, Clive Jones. Still congealing blood glistened from the very apparent, very severe throat wound to the boy and although John checked for signs of life, tragically, there were none. Heading back out and to save them from distress, advising George and Joan not to head into the wood, John went immediately to alert police, but upon returning, found a tragic sight. He described later to the Daily Mirror newspaper, I tried to keep Mr and Mrs Jones away, but when I got back from phoning the police, I found them sitting together near their boy. Now it's hard to imagine what must be worse there, isn't it? What do you do? Do you wait, knowing that your child is in there, injured or dead, and not being able to face that? 
or do you head in hoping that it can't be true and wanting or needing to see if there's anything that can be done to see for yourself that something so unimaginable is true? My heart goes out to anybody who finds themselves in such a situation. It really does. I can't even begin to imagine it. A murder investigation was immediately launched, spearheaded by Detective Chief Superintendent Harry Verity of West Yorkshire Police, and as teams of officers began to scour the area looking for a possibly discarded murder weapon, employing dogs, with underwater search teams combing the nearby River Air, and officers even employing the use of powerful magnets, detectives were questioning 10-year-old layman's, their prime witness. Detective Superintendent Verity told press the day after the crime. He's had a very bad shock and we're having to go slowly and gently with him. But my men have been working with Layman's on an identikit picture. He's my best witness on any identity parade and he's already given us a very good description of the man. It was a description issued to all police forces nationwide and was published in the local and national press. A man aged between 35 to 40 years old, 5 feet 9 to 6 feet tall, slim, brown-haired, with discoloured teeth, being unshaven and having a scratch on his face and having rough, worker-like hands. The man had at the time been wearing light-coloured trousers, brown shoes and a three-quarter length unbelted overcoat in a small brown and white check pattern with slanting slit pockets. It had led swiftly to several suspects being identified and one by one ruled out, though considerable attention was placed upon its similarity to a man arrested and in custody on an unspecified charge at Chadwell Heath in Essex. In fact, so strong a suspect was this man that 10-year-old Layman's was even driven the 200 miles from Yorkshire to Essex to take part in a, as an eyewitness in an identity parade with him on it although this was to rule the man out and he was dismissed from any further suspicion in the inquiry. On the same day, meanwhile, the inquest into Clive Jones's death had been opened in Shipley before Coroner Stephen Jones and a jury of eight men, in which the inquest heard evidence from the examining pathologist Dr David E. Price, who reported that cause of death, in his opinion, had been due to an air embolism, shock, and severe hemorrhage inflicted by the single savage throat wound to Clive, one that had probably been caused by a sharp pocket knife with a blade of some four inches in length, and that was so severe that it had severed both of the boy's jugular veins. Now, a maniac who does something like that to a small boy isn't someone that you want running around the streets, is it? And he had to be stopped soonest, and thankfully, it wasn't long before he was. Inquiries led investigating officers to the Bradford district of Buttershaw and to its Woodside estate, where more than one resident spoken to told police that the description of the killer fitted a 33-year-old lorry driver who lived in Dalston House in the Moresby Road area, named John George Robinson. Now, Robinson was not a known sex offender, but even though he was married, and indeed was a new father, his wife having given birth to their son less than three weeks previously, neighbours still regarded him with some suspicion. Police did also, when they went to his home following this information being passed to them, only to discover that Robinson had fled the area some days before. 
A hunt was now launched for him, and some three nights after the murder, on Thursday the 26th of July 1962, he was arrested in the Derbyshire town of Matlock. As he was being escorted back to West Yorkshire for questioning at Shipley Police Station, Robinson told one of the police officers escorting him, Detective Sergeant Leonard Bell, I did meet two little lads fishing in the canal. I took one of them on the riverbank and did him in. I don't know what came over me. As casual as that. Indeed, Robinson made no attempt whatsoever to deny his crime. You'd remember hearing something like that until your dying day, wouldn't you? Part of Robinson's statement when he was later being interviewed at Shipley read, I just grabbed hold of him and that was it. I did him in. I nicked his throat with a knife. I don't know what made me do it. I love kids. Plus you hate to see what you did if you hated them, mate. Robinson continued. I met them down by the canal at the back of Linley's in Windhill. We walked down towards the river and we talked about rabbits, you know, and I told them that I worked on a farm, but I didn't. I don't know why I'd done him in, but something must have come over me. I took him into the little bushes and said I was going to show him some rabbits. I just grabbed hold of him and that was it. I don't know what came over us. I pulled his buttons on his trousers open and he shouted, so I got my knife out and nicked his throat. I only got the knife that day, but honest, I didn't buy it to murder anyone with. That's the truth, that. I didn't mean to harm no one. I've always wanted a son and my wife had had one on the 4th of July. Love, kiddies. Honestly, I, I don't know why I did it. The blood spurted out onto my hands and I made off. I knew I'd cut his throat right across and I was scared, so I made off under the railway bridge. I went on the side of the canal and washed my hands and dried them on my hanky. Then I threw my hanky into the canal. I then thought that the other lad might recognise me in my overcoat, so I took it off and threw that into the canal as well. I threw my knife away too. I'll show you where. It was a green coloured one. I bought it from that paper shop just above the bookies. John George Robinson was charged with the murder of nine-year-old Clive Jones following this admission and appeared the following morning before a special sitting of Bingley Magistrates Court. When he was cautioned before the hearing, Robinson replied, Yes, sir, I'm sorry I've done it. What I've said in my statements is true. Though even as early as this remand hearing, whilst it was clear that, that Robinson was in no way denying having killed Clive Jones, he was claiming that the boy's death had been an accident. But while there was no evidence of a sexual assault having been made on the boy, a sexual motive was very strongly suspected, and Robinson's own admission about undoing Clive's trousers sounds very much like there was one, doesn't it? Robinson was remanded in custody, following his court appearance and sent to Armley Jail in Leeds to await trial. Whilst investigations to substantiate his claimed movements on the day of the murder and subsequent days before his arrest were made. Now it was soon established Robinson had been seen by several people on the day of the murder, so his movements could in part be pinpointed. A council worker came forward to say that he'd been drinking in the Blue Bell Hotel in Shipley on the afternoon of the murder when at about 12.45pm, John Robinson, whom he knew, came into the bar. Robinson, the witness said, had been wearing what he described as some proper rough clobber, including a very dirty old tweed topcoat. 
Both had played dominoes until about 3pm, when both had then left as it was chucking out time. There was no all-day drinking back then. This witness was in the Bluebell Hotel once again just after 9pm that evening, where he again met John Robinson, who by this time had a dirty wind cheater on, but no top coat. Both had once again played dominoes, and the witness had left Robinson there at about 10.40pm. So, where was Robinson in these missing six hours? A newsagent who ran a shop at number 78 Leeds Road in Shipley told police that at about 4pm on the afternoon of the murder, Robinson had come into his shop and asked him for a scout knife, but the newsagent had none available for sale. He did, however, have a selection of pen knives and sold Robinson a green-handled one of these for two shillings and sixpence. His son, an assistant in the shop, corroborated his father's story and furthered that he had himself seen Robinson in the Bluebell Hotel at about 8.45pm the same evening and corroborated that he was then wearing a different overcoat to the herringbone-style one Robinson had worn when he was in the shop that afternoon. Then, at 5.25pm on the day of the murder, a Shipley Urban District Council worker walking home from work with three workmates, heading up from the River Air towards the Leeds and Liverpool Canal under the Shipley Viaduct on the Shipley side, later told police he saw a man, who he later identified as Robinson, walking with two boys who appeared to be about 10 or 11 years old, and heading from the direction of the canal towards the river. The worker distinctly remembered that one of the boys was carrying a small glass jar with him. Shortly after this sighting, a labourer working on the Dockfield Industrialist site said that at about the same time, he had cause to visit some bushes near to the railway viaduct. For whatever purpose, you can only imagine, can't you? The labourer claimed that he was in the bushes for some time, as he'd lost some money from his pocket whilst doing whatever he was, and that while he was searching for it, he heard a child's piercing scream at roughly 5.30pm. Now he didn't take much notice of this, he claimed, as there were generally a lot of children playing in the area, because as we've said, it was a favoured haunt for kids. Shortly afterwards, when he'd finished shitting, because, okay, what else is he doing in the bloody bushes? He saw a man come from under the bridge, saying that when he saw this man, he was directly over him as he was almost on top of the viaduct, and that the man had been heading into the Shipley Industrial Estate. He admitted that he hardly thought that he would recognise him again, as he only gave this man a mere glance, but he did add that he remembered the man had been wearing a fawn-coloured sort of dirty raglan-type overcoat. So, Robinson had clearly hung around the Shipley area that afternoon after drinking, had obtained a knife of the same type that it was soon determined had been used to kill Clive Jones, and several witnesses could place him or who was likely to have been him, in the area of the murder, at the crucial time, with, undoubtedly, the two boys. Following the murder, Robinson had admitted to police that he headed back into Shipley over the Baildon Bridge, following disposing of his bloodstained handkerchief, the knife and his overcoat, before heading once again for the Bluebell and staying there drinking for the remainder of that evening. He'd spent that night sleeping in an empty prefab nearby to where he used to live, in Gaysby Lane, 
before the following day hitchhiking north to his hometown of Spennymoor in County Durham, where he stayed the night at his sister's house. The next day, he had hitchhiked south from here to his uncle's house at Ferry Hill Station, south of Durham, where he spent Wednesday night, but seemingly having no clear plan of what he was to do, or any direction of where he was going, Robinson claimed he'd left here on the Thursday morning and hitchhiked as far south as Ashbourne in Derbyshire, where from here he then made his way across to Matlock, before being spotted by a sharp-eyed police officer and arrested. Committed for trial for the murder of Clive Jones, John George Robinson pleaded not guilty when he appeared before Mr Justice Finnimore at Leeds Assizes on Tuesday the 23rd of October 1962, although he opted not to give evidence in his defence to support this claim. The trial was a formality really, based upon Robinson's earlier statement and his remarks, and the court was to hear not only that he had confessed to police in full his crime, but whilst on remand awaiting trial, Robinson had had a conversation with another inmate, a man named Parkinson, who he had told whilst both men were awaiting seeing the prison medical officer. I'm up for that job in Shipley, you know. Parkinson's initial response to this was not recorded, but two days later he'd asked Robinson, Why did you do it then? To which Robinson had replied, Well, I'd been drinking, and if he hadn't struggled, then I would not have done him in. Mr A. Brian Boyle QC, prosecuting, told the court Robinson had admitted to police that while he was unbuttoning Clive's shirt and trousers, Clive had startled him by trying to run away, and this had resulted in the boy's throat being cut. Yet Robinson, when police had questioned him, would not elaborate on either why he was armed with a knife in his hand at the time, or why exactly he was unbuttoning the boy's clothing leaving it to the jury to draw their own conclusions as to why Robinson had taken him into the wood that afternoon. In the part of the statement that said, I pulled his buttons on his trousers open and he shouted, so I got my knife out and nicked his throat. Mr Boyle claimed that the defence, led by Mr G. W. Waller QC, would claim that this nick was indeed an accident. But the extent and the dimensions of the wound and remember, this had severed both of the boy's jugular veins, so it's some bloody nick, that, isn't it? Showed at the very least an intention to commit serious harm, which made the case one of murder. Mr Waller could offer nothing in mitigation to this, barring establishing that Robinson had no previous criminal convictions, and certainly none for any sexual assault or any offences against children. As we said, Robinson had opted to say nothing in his defence, so on Wednesday the 24th of October 1962, the jury retired for just 15 minutes before returning with the unanimous verdict of guilty of the murder of Clive Jones. As open and shut as that. Sentencing Robinson to life imprisonment, Mr Justice Finnimore told him, This was a wicked and cruel crime you must be kept in prison for the rest of your life. However, the judge's recommendation meant very little. No notice was certainly taken of it anyway, because John George Robinson was to serve just 13 and a half years of this life sentence, before being released from Liverpool Prison 
at the end of May 1976. Yes, for slitting the throat of a nine-year-old boy. By this time 47 years old, his wife long since having divorced him and him having no contact with his son, who'd been born just three weeks before his arrest for murder, Robinson had been released on licence partly because his nephew, 25-year-old textile worker Thomas Batty, and his 25-year-old wife Mary, had expressed their willingness to assist in his rehabilitation if he was released on parole. Both had regularly visited Robinson in prison during his sentence, Mary even often visiting him by herself, but by the time Robinson's release was facilitated, Thomas and Mary had split up, with Thomas taking lodgings in Goldcar, leaving the family home in Whiteacre Close in the Huddersfield district of Dayton, with Mary and the couple's son David remaining there in the house. Now, under the terms of Robinson's release, he was required to report to his probation officer weekly and was strictly forbidden to visit either Bradford or Shipley, the latter, of course, being the scene of Clive Jones's murder. But although these conditions may have seemed strict to some, lifers were actually usually only recalled to prison if they committed or were found likely to commit an act of violence. So, a once-a-week check-in, and pretty much, even if it was missed, it wouldn't be enough for a recall. A home for Robinson was found over in Dickinson Street in Wakefield, some 20 miles or so away from Dayton, as well as a labouring job in a Wakefield brickworks. And most weekends, Robinson would make the trip across to Whiteacre Close to visit Mary and four-year-old David, him seemingly very fond of the boy, and apparently, Thomas and Mary being quite happy, despite Robinson's criminal past, for him to see and spend time with their son boggles the mind doesn't it and as i said robinson seemed fond of the both of them perhaps in some ways a bit too fond because what at first mary thomas robinson's probation officer and pretty much anyone else was oblivious to was that robinson had wrongly taken the charity and compassion of mary as a clear sign that she fancied him even though she had no sexual interest in him whatsoever. Indeed, only a few weeks after Robinson had been released, Mary had begun a new relationship with a 31-year-old local man named Gavin Coldwell, which had not pleased Robinson in the slightest. Now, although she tolerated Robinson visiting them, and at first was welcoming towards him, by September of that year, relations had soured between them, because it became apparent to Mary that Robinson expressed sexual desires for her, and Mary was understandably uncomfortable with this. When this in turn became apparent to Robinson, he did spare her the embarrassment of causing a scene by not turning up at the house to remonstrate, but instead writing her a series of letters to say that he could no longer stay at her home, or even visit them anymore, confessing to her that this was because he'd been in love with her, Robinson wrote ever since he'd been told whilst in prison that she was marrying his nephew Thomas several years before. In an extract from one of these letters, Robinson wrote, As far as Huddersfield is concerned, I've had enough. Give my pal, and he's referring to Mary's son David here, give my pal a big kiss from me, I'll miss him. I've looked forward to seeing you my pal every week, but I will get over it. Many thanks, Bonnie lass, for your help. 
John. Nevertheless, despite Robinson promising in these letters that he couldn't see her anymore, this proved easier said than done for him, and he turned up at her home once again. On the evening of Friday, October the 1st, 1976, Robinson arrived at Huddersfield bus station, and after a telephone call, persuaded Mary to come and meet him that evening for drinks. She agreed, but took the precaution of taking a neighbour out with her, and the three went to the Little John, a Huddersfield pub. Now one Friday night drink led on to another one, then another, and by the end of the evening, all three of the party were drunk, and by last orders, had agreed to all head back to Mary's home, where her neighbour's husband had been looking after David. Once back here, a small bash developed, some food was prepared, and the neighbours didn't leave until almost 1am. Later, in the early hours, Mary's next-door neighbours were woken by a commotion coming from her house, hearing a man's raised voice that they assumed was Mary's estranged husband Thomas, because they thought that it was his voice that they could hear shouting. The noise seemed to be coming from the back bedroom of the house, and listening, it sounded to Mary's neighbours as if someone were being dragged out of bed. However, the former couple's relationship had been volatile to say the least, shall we say, and the sound of rows from the house in Whiteacre Close was nothing new. So when all went quiet, the neighbours merely went back to sleep as they had so often before, making a mental note to have a word with Mary when they next saw her. Now, the following morning, the neighbours didn't see Mary, but nor did they hear what would have alerted anybody, certainly those with a sense of concern and moral decency. The terrified whimpers of four-year-old David coming through the letterbox of the front door. One report I found whilst researching the case claims that other neighbours in Whiteacre Close had heard the sounds of a child crying as early as 10am that Saturday morning, but no one had taken any notice of it. By 2pm, however, Gavin Caldwell had come around to visit Mary and David. He recalled later. I called around on the Saturday afternoon and found the downstairs curtains still drawn, which was unusual. I knocked on the door, but no answer, and then listening, I could hear David crying behind the front door. Opening the letterbox, I talked to him through it, and he told me that his mummy was lying on the floor bleeding. Gavin now knew that something was very seriously wrong. He went on. I went around the back and kicked open the back door, which was only held by a steel bar. At first, all I could see was Mary's feet. As Gavin tentatively made his way into the house, little David ran straight to him and clung to him, sobbing fiercely, and it was then, while shielding the boy's eyes, that Gavin could take in the full horrific scene that lay before him. Mary Batty lay on the living room floor, naked from the waist down, wearing only a blouse and a blood-stained housecoat. She'd been mutilated about the neck, having had her throat slit, had been extensively stabbed in the lungs, and what was found at post-mortem to have been at least ten times in the heart, and horrifically had had parts of her breasts cut off, which were found to be missing, the killer having taken them away from the scene. It's the stuff of nightmares indeed, that, isn't it? 
The later post-mortem was to reveal that Mary had been dead for almost 12 hours when Gavin had found her, having been strangled, stabbed and the mutilation performed upon her body after death. She had not been raped, although sexual activity had certainly been attempted with her, as semen was found to have been ejaculated around her vaginal area. Tragically, Mary was also found to have been three months pregnant at the time of her death. Now, that's awful enough on more levels than I can begin to describe. I was reminded of many cases we've covered here previously on The Enthusiast with this one. Glyn Dix, Peter Bryan as I said before, Daniel Restivo, even Samantha and Jasmine's terrible tale. And that needs no reminder really at all, does it? But to begin with here, to even do that to anybody is behaviour disturbed and evil beyond belief, isn't it? And for Gavin, to find your loved one in such a way, but to then later find out that she was carrying your child at the time also. Awful, unimaginable. But the thought that chilled me to the bone and made my heart sink. Four-year-old David had woken up to find his mother like that downstairs. Who knows what time he'd woken and how long he'd been in that house with his mother's body. And again, it's something I say often here, isn't it? But that is the proper stuff that nightmares are made of. That poor, poor kid. You can't even begin to imagine it, can you? As David was immediately taken to his father to be cared for then, following a hospital examination in which he was found to be physically unharmed, a murder hunt was launched, with police immediately utilising the press in the investigation. The officer leading the murder hunt, Detective Superintendent Ronald Sills, first stressed to the media that David had been unharmed, but that it was possible that the boy had seen the murder happen, and also that the killer had left the house bloodstained and possibly injured. He told the Daily Mirror newspaper, This was a very savage attack, and obviously the person responsible could kill again. We've questioned the boy, but it's very difficult when dealing with a child of that age. According to Mary's sister, a twin, Helen Wilson, David said he saw the man who killed his mummy with blood on his face. Detective Superintendent Sills then wasted no time in stating that police were anxious to trace 47-year-old John George Robinson, the uncle of Mary's husband Thomas, continuing, We know he was with Mary and a friend last night, but we don't know whether Mr. Robinson stayed the night at the house. He may be able to give us some information, and I'm appealing for anyone who knows where he is, or himself, to come forward and to offer assistance. We think he may be able to throw a new light on the situation. He furthered that Robinson had connections with both Durham and Derbyshire, and that his last known address had been in Dickinson Street in the Wakefield area of West Yorkshire. A description of Robinson was also issued to police forces nationwide, the local and national press. Six foot two inches tall with grey in hair, wearing either a dark blue or small check raincoat, deep red cardigan buttoned up at the front, a white patterned shirt, a brown tie and brown shoes. So, by Sunday the 3rd of October 1976, for the second time in his life, John George Robinson was the subject of a hunt, once again wanted on suspicion of murder. Whilst the search for him got underway, 
with officers checking his known haunts and his family connections. His sister's home up in Spennymoor, the home of his ex-wife, his uncle's home in Ferryhill Station, places like that. A search got underway for a discarded murder weapon, with teams of police scouring the Dayton area, doing the full Tommy Lee Jones bit from The Fugitive. Now, the knife that had been used, a large, very sharp butcher's boning knife, was discovered the following day, but was found by a party of schoolchildren on a railway embankment about a mile or so away from Whiteacre Close, not by the teams of officers who were scouring the area for it. However, police had, later the day before, made a much more macabre discovery. In a plastic bag, found discarded underneath a hedge just at the top of Whiteacre Close, were the pieces of Mary's body that her killer had removed and had taken away with him. A find that you would take to your grave with you, beyond doubt, that isn't it the stuff of nightmares. However, that Sunday evening, the same day as this discovery had been made, John Robinson himself had walked into Huddersfield Central Police Station and told the desk sergeant, I'm John Robinson, I believe that you're looking for me. Yeah, just a little bit like. Cautioned and arrested on the spot, Robinson told detectives in his subsequent interview that shortly after she'd gone to bed, with the premise of him sleeping on the sofa in the lounge, he'd actually headed up to Mary's bedroom and found her asleep in bed with David. Pulling back the bedclothes, he then touched Mary. Mary had awoken and begun to scream and protest at this. So they'd struggled, and Robinson had placed his hands around Mary's throat, strangling her. Her screams had woken up David, whom Robinson managed to coax back to sleep, pretending to the boy that his mother had just had some sort of bad dream, and the child eventually complied. Tiredness and the presence of an adult that he both knew and trusted overcoming any fear or anxiety the boy had at the time. Robinson had then bodily picked Mary up and carried her downstairs, where he attempted to have sex with the corpse on the living room floor. Although he admitted he tried for some time to do so, he failed in this macabre, disgusting venture, and instead merely ejaculated over Mary's vagina. In a rage, he then fetched a knife from the kitchen and began to inflict the horrific mutilation upon a corpse. Such was Robinson's fury whilst doing so, that the blade of this knife bent in the process of committing it. So he made his way once again to the kitchen, returning moments later with a larger boning knife, which after stabbing him repeatedly with, he then used to cut up parts of Mary's body. The body parts that he'd removed, he then placed into a plastic carrier bag, before removing and pocketing Mary's watch, some £20 in cash that was in a stein in the living room, and then left the house through the front door, taking the house keys with him. After making his way to the end of Whiteacre Close, he suddenly decided to abandon the bag of body parts underneath a hedge near to where the cul-de-sac met the adjoining Whiteacre Road, and then made his way north from here to the M62 motorway where he hitched a lift northbound and found himself a few hours later in his native county Durham. Here, he'd stayed with a female acquaintance of his for the night, whom he gave Mary's watch to, before deciding to make his way back southwards towards Huddersfield, 
arriving there just a few hours before he'd walked into the police station. Meanwhile, anticipating public outcry that a convicted murderer, one sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of a child, had been released after serving a sentence of just over 13 years, a tariff that would be more common for a verdict of manslaughter than murder, and upon release had gone on to kill once again, this time in arguably even more horrific circumstances. The Home Office made an announcement. A spokesperson from the department said that there was no official record that when sentencing Robinson, the then late Mr Justice Finnemore had specifically told him that he must remain incarcerated for the rest of his natural life. We have no record of the judge saying anything of the kind in this case, the spokesperson insisted. Now isn't it funny that, and isn't it totally unlike a government department to backtrack and try to deny something, eh? Because think back to what was said by Mr Justice Finnemore at the time of Robinson's sentencing in 1962 for the murder of Clive Jones, which I'll repeat once again here. This was a wicked and cruel crime. You must be kept in prison for the rest of your life. It's pretty self-explanatory that, isn't it? It was a recommendation that was never queried during the 1962 trial, one that was clearly quoted in all of the newspaper articles reporting coverage of the case, and I found the exact same quote in every one that I've used for research when I was creating this episode. So it's a strange thing to insist this is, isn't it, that there's no record of it. Unless bloody Sue Gray wrote it, of course. The Home Office spokesperson added that had Mr Justice Finnemore made this recommendation, totally refusing to backtrack here, then it had been made at a time where the death penalty was still in force in the UK, and there were no formal procedures in place at the time to allow him to make such a recommendation, these not being introduced until the abolition of the death penalty in 1965, three years after Robinson's life sentence. However, the spokesperson furthered that at the time Robinson was sentenced to life, a life sentence meant just that. Although he could be released on parole, as he had been, the life sentence imposed in 1962 was still operative, meaning that Robinson could be recalled to prison at any time for the rest of his life. Which obviously went tits up, didn't it? John George Robinson stood in a dock facing a charge of murder for the second time in his life, admitted the murder of Mary Batty when he appeared before Mr Justice Borum at Leeds Crown Court on Monday the 24th of January 1977. But rather than being merely the simplistic affair of a hearing and then sentencing, the powers that be had some questions to answer, like, why was this man even released from a life sentence? to be able to commit such a heinous crime. Prosecuting counsel Gilbert Gray QC. Now we've come across this guy before on the show, I'm sure we have, because I recall the name, if I can't recall the case that he was involved with, told the court how just four months after his release from Liverpool prison, Robinson had murdered Mary Batty and then attempted sex with her corpse. Not content with this being horror enough, Robinson had then extensively and severely mutilated her body, taking parts of it away with him in a plastic shopping bag and leaving her sleeping four-year-old son to discover his mother's butchered remains. Mr Gray then told the court that, I quote, 
Because there must be grave public disquiet in the case, he outlined the 1962 murder of Clive Jones, which had a sexual element to it, and for which Robinson had received a life sentence. Now by this time also, funny old thing, Mr Justice Finimore's sentencing remarks in the 1962 trial had been discovered somewhere. It's an absolute bloody miracle, because Mr Gray was able to quote them to Leeds Crown Court in full. He also told the court that the Director of Public Prosecutions had made extensive inquiries, wanting to trace back as far as possible the reasons for Robinson's release from this life sentence, and for answers to this, he'd written to the Home Office. Now they did write back, but only in a limited capacity I must add, saying that under the Criminal Justice Act of 1967, the administration was carried out by a parole board decision with the parole board making recommendations as they thought right. The relevant paragraphs of this letter, which was dated only five days before the opening of the trial on January the 19th, paragraphs 3 and 4 came with an added note. The Home Office had asked that the contents of this letter strictly should not be made for public awareness. Nevertheless, it was handed to Mr Justice Borum to read, who summarised to the court after studying the letter's contents, that police efforts to obtain information from the probation services about the general attitude and character of Robinson had indeed been made following his release, but had only been met with a limited degree of success from the authorities who had functioned it. And it had come back and bitten them right on the arse there, hadn't it? Robinson's disturbing statement to police given at Huddersfield Central Police Station upon his surrender and his arrest on Sunday October the 3rd of the previous year was then read to the court, which in part reads as follows. I'd kissed David goodnight and he and Mary had gone to bed, so I kept on the settee for a bit and then I got round to fancying a bit with Mary. I went upstairs to the big bedroom and found that Mary was asleep in bed and David was in bed with her. He was asleep too. I got onto the bed and pulled the blankets down. Mr Gray told the court that Robinson had then begun sexually interfering with Mary, which had woken her. The statement continued. She woke up and started shouting, leave us alone, and told me that she didn't want me after we'd been friends all this time. This was the struggle that Mary's next door neighbours had heard, including a shout of, you're killing me, which they mistakenly put down to a row between Mary and her estranged husband Thomas, and thought no more of it. What was actually happening, Mr Gray described, was that Robinson took her around the throat and simply strangled her with sufficient violence to damage the bony structures of the neck and produce extensive bruising. He continued from the statement, I picked her up and took her downstairs and then his son woke up. He was crying and I went back up and told him to calm down. I talked to him and eventually coaxed him back to sleep and covered him up. Mr Gray then told the jury how Robinson had headed back downstairs and quoting from his statement, I tried to have it with Mary but it was no good. She was dead. After a while I gave up. Mr Gray continued, Robinson picked up Mary Batty and put her on the floor of the living room. He spread-eagled her, moving her arms and legs apart, 
and decided to have sexual intercourse with her. She was, according to the medical evidence, almost certainly dead from the strangulation that had occurred upstairs. He failed to effect his purpose. Robinson then got a small kitchen knife from the kitchen and attacked Mrs. Batty's body with such ferocity that the blade of the knife was bent back. He returned to the kitchen and got a larger kitchen knife, which he described in his statement to police as a big knife like a sawing knife, and mutilated her body in quite the most horrendous manner. Now, when asked in his police interview why he'd mutilated Mary, Robinson had declined to explain his reasons, but had said, I think I did this because I was jealous of Mary's boyfriend. I didn't like him at all. If I can't have her, then nobody's going to have her. I thought a lot of Mary and her little son. I think he thought more of me than his father. He was still in bed when I left the house. Then, unbelievably, Robinson had added, That's the lot. I feel a bit better now. Can you believe this guy or what, eh? This is someone who on one hand describes the most heinous of crimes, murder, attempted necrophilia, and severe sexual mutilation, and then in the next breath, says how much he thought of the woman he'd just killed, and his son, the little boy he thought so much of, that he left him in the house to find when he woke up, as Mr Grey put it, his butchered and mutilated mother, adding, what horrifies and appalls is the fact that Mr. Coldwell heard David screaming at the front door and describing his mother on the floor inside. As I said before, the stuff of nightmares, eh? it's clearly apparent exactly how much you thought of them, Robinson. Mr. Lewis Lawton QC, defending Robinson, told the court that a consultant psychiatrist who had examined him whilst he was on remand described him as a sadistic sexual deviant for whom there is no known treatment, who will remain extremely dangerous to the opposite sex until such time as his sexual drive has disappeared as a result of age. Proper scrape in the barrel, as a token of mitigation, Mr Lawton said that Robinson had had a good character and had not committed any known crimes until he was in his early thirties, adding, Perhaps the seven years of his life on which he can look back with pride are those spent serving his country and the United Nations forces in Korea. In Korea, he was engaged in active fighting. When he was discharged from the army, he was given a good character. It counts for absolutely bugger all. Nothing though that does it when you've gone on to commit the atrocities that Robinson had. Mr Justice Borum then told Robinson, You've pleaded guilty to murder, and for that there is but one sentence. You'll be sent to prison for life. But in addition to that, the circumstances of this case, coupled with the events and circumstances of the previous conviction, a like offence, have persuaded me beyond any doubt that you are a danger towards the other sex, an extreme danger, and you will remain such until your sexual drive has disappeared as a result of your getting older. I am in no position to determine how long that process will take, and I shall recommend to the Home Secretary that in your case, the sentence of life imprisonment means life imprisonment, and that you shall not be released before the end of your days. Take him down. For the second time in his life, John George Robinson was then taken down to begin a life sentence for murder. 
and this time he was never to walk out of prison for a third time, for just over three years later, on the 31st of March 1980, John George Robinson died of cancer in the hospital wing of Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. He was 51 years old. Following Robinson's second murder conviction, questions were once again asked in the highest places over the exact reasoning behind his release the previous year. The Police Federation expressed disgust at the decision, with a spokesperson saying, It makes you wonder just what the hell is going on. This is by no means the first of its kind. In fact, there have been three similar crimes in the last ten years. There's a great deal of concern that someone as dangerous as this should be released back into society. We certainly hope there will be an inquiry into why. Never mind an inquiry, you grab the bull by the bollocks and you go for the head person who should be in the know, or the one who must carry the can, anyway. The Labour MP for Central Lambeth at the time, Marcus Lipton, was reported as to be tabling the question to the then Home Secretary, Merlin Rees, in Parliament about exactly why Robinson had been released, only to kill again, with Lipton saying, The public have a right to know why in these circumstances a parole board apparently overruled a judge's decision and let this man out to repeat his crime. I want to know how parole boards come to these decisions it's high time their role was reviewed and re-examined. This man is plainly a pervert and should never have been released. I cannot for the life of me understand how, in view of this man's terrible record, a parole board could possibly have overruled the recommendation of the trial judge, a decision which led to another horrible murder. Defending itself, the Home Office were later to claim that it was a series of tragic coincidences that had prevented the parole board from knowing the full circumstances of the double killer's case. Although Mr Justice Finnemore had recommended in open court that Robinson should never be released from prison, he'd not subsequently put these feelings in official writing to the Home Secretary following the trial, which was the normal custom in cases such as this, and therefore the parole board had no formal knowledge of his recommendation. It stinks the high heaven of excuses, really, doesn't it? Further, because Robinson had not lodged an appeal against either his conviction or his sentence back in 1962, all transcripts of the case, complete with the accompanying shorthand notes, had been destroyed soon after his conviction. Also, the two people who may have been able to provide vital information for the parole board when deciding upon Robinson's release Mr Justice Finnemore and the shorthand transcriber at the 1962 trial had each long since died before the 1976 hearing, so could not have been spoken to either. Not being drawn to comment or justify any further, this is the only public admittance that the Home Office has ever made on the case, and no public inquiry was ever undertaken. Now, this tale is one that brought to the fore of me so many questions, but first and foremost, your spidey sense would proper go off there, wouldn't it? Because surely, no matter the size of any archiving or anything like that, all transcripts of any trial that sends a person to prison for life, for the murder of a child no less, should be kept for review purposes, if there is even a ghost of a chance that one day, however far down the line, the killer may be up for possible release, back amongst the general public. 
Quite rightly, I believe criticism was levied at the powers that be for such serious failings. I mean, it boggles the bloody mind, doesn't it? Who would not want to check further the exact details of the crimes, at the very least read the sentencing remarks concerning someone stood in front of them who they had the power to facilitate a release for, after being told the said person was in prison for slashing the throat of a nine-year-old boy. Any person who isn't a complete fucking idiot should surely think, hang on, let's learn a bit more about this guy's crime first before we go off half-cocked and give him all and sundry. If it is true, and all records and transcripts of the 1962 trial were destroyed, and I know it's not like a politician to lie, Shame on me for even suggesting that that may be an excuse, but if it is true, then it's an absolute disgrace and a serious failing. Yes, as you can probably tell, the decision to release Robinson angered me really, because whilst no one should be murdered, of course they shouldn't, but Mary's is a death that simply and sadly should never have happened, because he should never have been at large to pure and simple. It troubled me greatly while I was researching the case as to why exactly this child killer was put forward for parole after serving such a paltry sentence in the first place. I mean, were Clive Jones's family informed or consulted, and how must they have felt? And when he was being considered, why was Robinson's serious sexual deviance not highlighted by medical staff prior to him being released? Because even as far back as 1962, this is someone with clearly serious psychological issues, isn't it? I mean, who slits the throat of a nine-year-old boy if you are all there? You know what I mean? Any possible insanity on the part of Robinson doesn't even seem to have been addressed or reportedly even explored during the 13 years he was incarcerated. Yet I believe it was clearly there, as I've just said, and surely... For someone facing possible release from a life sentence, bearing in mind the gravity of his crime, then shouldn't they be passed as medically sound to be released, with no dangerous sexual deviance that may be being unleashed back into the general population? Because what was described on during his second remand period by an examining psychiatrist doesn't suddenly come on in four months, does it? Now whether he was examined by prison doctors for evidence of such a deviance, and these examining professionals missed it, or were fooled by Robinson, or this just didn't happen, who knows? The Home Office would not say. But whatever, the powers that be decided Robinson was fine to be released. And just over four months later, thanks in part to this decision, a four-year-old boy was to awaken to find his mother's corpse mutilated almost beyond belief and was left alone, trapped in the house with it for hours. How do you even begin to try and come to terms with something so horrific and unimaginable? How must David Batty feel still, even to this day? It's a terrible case this one, isn't it? And are you as surprised as I am that it's not more of a familiar one, given the circumstance and the pure horror of it? Perhaps it's unfair to solely blame the parole board here, for of course it is the evil of Robinson responsible first and foremost, and after all, the parole board can supervise an individual to a point, but circumstance or opportunity for the individual are not under their sole control once that person is out of the prison environment on a daily basis, and sometimes, sometimes even years later, the propensity to kill rears its head once again depending on said circumstances and opportunity arising. 
Think as I said at the start of the cases of Glyn Dix and Peter Bryan, two of the most terrible crimes I've covered here on The Enthusiast. And as an aside, the episodes concerning those cases are The Little Argument and The Time Bomb, respectively. The tragic murder of Mary Batty is an example of a failing of a department that, sadly, as we've heard several times before here on the show to date, isn't infallible and does sometimes get it wrong, which they certainly did here with John Robinson. The man was a clear danger to women and children, so I ask an echo again, why put him back with access to them at all? And further, why indeed did Robinson not face the gallows back in 1962? That just doesn't seem right, does it? So, now I've had my thinking aloud bit here then, what do you folks think? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the case featured in the episode To Kill and Kill Again which I invite you as ever to share in the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or you can get in touch with me to discuss it through any of the show's social media links. I'm always happy to chat with you folks wherever. Although it's a truly disturbing case, I do hope that it is one you found both informative and interesting, and I implore you, think not of John Robinson following this tale, he's long gone the way he deserves, but instead, think about David, or the parents of Clive, or Gavin, the people whose lives he left shattered beyond repair by his monstrous actions. With that, it's wrap-up time here once again, so as ever, I thank you folks kindly for once again joining me on the world's laziest doorstop today. I shall be back on the regular enthusiast in a couple of weeks' time now, as it's Patreon episode next time around, and I have one to replenish after bringing this one, of course. I might even chuck two out, I don't know yet. But that I'll do anyway, and I'll be back on the regular show very soon for some more tales of dark deeds for your podcast feeds. All that's left for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.